Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time. You know, Netflix just released its newest documentary, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. This hotel was built in 1924, and the Hotel Cecil is located down in downtown Los Angeles between 6th and 7th Street. It's in an area called Skid Row. I'm here today with Dr. Judy Ho. Judy is a licensed and triple board certified clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. She's also a tenured associate professor at Pepperdine University, a television and podcast host and star, and a published author. In fact, Judy, uh, your newest book, Stop Self-Sabotage, I think is just going crazy, isn't it? Well, it's going really well. And thank you so much, Mike, for that lovely introduction. I'm so glad to be with you today again to chat about this case. Well, I'll tell you, you were a focal point throughout the entire show. And this show focuses on the attention around the suspicious death of a Canadian student named Elisa Lamb, who I think captured the world's attention in early 2013 when she disappeared. What, what do you, when you think of Elisa, what do you think about this young woman and, and how she grabbed everyone's attention? Well, you know, Mike, I think she really captured everyone's attention because she was so relatable. She was aspirational. She was this really bright young woman from Canada. And she was traveling to Los Angeles, essentially having a a very important rite of passage for many young adults where they travel on their own, they explore the world, they develop new experiences, and they learn. And I think another piece of why she captured the international stage so much is that she left behind an extremely complex set of blogs on Tumblr. And in these Tumblr blogs, she bared her soul. She spoke eloquently about her struggles, her dreams, what she hoped her life would become, why she felt like she was being held back. And to be honest with you, Mike, I feel like a lot of people resonated with some part of Elisa's message. You know, she really captured me with with reading some of those Tumblr blogs and earlier writings that she had. Uh, Clearly, she was a normal kid from the perspective of dealing with social interaction and dealing with relationships. I I think about, and I wanted to just ask you about her parents, just to start with, how hard it is for a parent to let a child leave on an adventure like this. I mean, she wasn't going uh, a few miles away to a friend's house for the weekend. She was traveling thousands of miles away to go to Los Angeles. I think it's tough for all parents to see their children grow up and to start tackling these things in life that feel 
in some ways insurmountable when you're thinking about your child growing up as a baby and them being these helpless little children and eventually being somebody who has their own ideas and wants to come into their own. And I think Elisa really wanted to come into her own. And she told her parents, I, I really want this trip. I need this trip. Here are some promises I will make. For example, I will call you every single day to make sure that you guys know where I am and that I'm okay. And in fact, that was a big part of why they reported the missing persons uh, report so quickly because there was one day where she didn't call and maybe that is maybe too soon for a missing persons report. I mean, you would know better than me, Mike, but for her parents, it wasn't. She had called at least once every 24 hours and it just was weird that she didn't. And I think yeah. they probably had to let go of those those uh, parental strings a bit because they wanted her to develop as a person. They wanted her to be happy. They wanted her to thrive. But that's scary coming from a suburb, Vancouver, Canada, and going to not only just Los Angeles, a huge city, but of course, as you mentioned, Skid Row, which isn't necessarily maybe the safest place for a single <laughs> traveler who's not affiliated with Skid Row at all. Yeah, we talk about uh, risk levels that people are willing to take. I really wonder if Elisa or her parents had any idea where the Hotel Cecil really was situated and the place that she would ultimately end up staying. Um, but I was really intrigued. I, I, I have to just shout out, I absolutely love your podcast, Supercharged Life. And recently you were talking a little bit about this, but you said something that just really caused me to to sit back and pause and think. You were speaking about Asian culture, and you understand that. And this girl, um, tell me um, if there were additional challenges that Elisa would have faced coming from that kind of a culture and now just going out on her own. Well, thank you so much for shouting out the podcast, Mike. And you were recently on my podcast as a guest. And by the way, that episode is doing very well. People obviously oh, <laughs> love what you have to say. But thank you for listening to my podcast and, and what I said about essentially the mental health stigma that we are all still facing as a society, but certainly in certain cultures. And Elisa and I actually hail from the same culture. We're both... Uh, from traditional Chinese culture. And Elisa's family was first generation. I was an Im immigrant myself. I immigrated here when I was nine with my family. And the idea of mental health and the idea of mental illness and treatment in the mental health sector is still kind of a new idea in many traditional Chinese cultures. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows that individuals from Chinese cultures, they have a really hard time with this idea and concept of mental illness that they think that it's a characterological flaw, that it's important that the family hides that from other individuals, that essentially it makes them essentially on a lower totem pole of society, that maybe they're not marriage material, maybe they're kind of a lower level of social class. And I think that that makes it more imperative for families to try to keep mental illness history a bit on the essentially kind of like a secret from everybody else that they have to kind of manage it on their own and they're not supposed to talk about it with anyone else. And I think that that makes it 
more difficult for the individual who's suffering to feel okay about themselves when they've been diagnosed with a mental illness. And of course, then to follow through with treatment, because in Elisa's blog, she actually talked a couple of times about how she felt like I was on these psychiatric medications because I couldn't handle life. And there's something wrong with me. I'm too weak. And that's why I can't manage life struggles without all of these medications. And I can't imagine what that does to a young person's heart and mind to think that they're somehow below other people. Yeah. And that they have a, a, a life sentence placed on them just because of a diagnosis. Uh, I mean, how do you as a, as a clinical and forensic psychologist help someone understand that Sometimes, well, in fact, always mental illness is like having cancer or a broken arm. Um, you know, how, how do you help people through that? I'm so glad that you brought that up because that's absolutely how I like to make the analogy to patients and their families who have a lot of mental illness stigma is you would never judge somebody for having cancer, for having diabetes for having a chronic heart condition, you would encourage them to get that treatment and you wouldn't think any of it, anything of it, if they got treatment. But it's very different still with mental illness. And I think it's because sometimes people think that mental illness is willful, like the person is choosing to be a certain way. They're choosing to isolate. They're choosing to be negative and therefore that's why they're depressed. They're choosing to stress out about stuff and that's why they're anxious. And it's really not that way. Mental illness is a brain disease and the brain is one of the most important organs that we have. So like your heart and like your liver and like your lungs, if there's an illness there, we've got to treat it and we can't treat it differently than we would a physical part of your body. Yeah. I, I have so much compassion for this young woman because I think about the pressure she was feeling that you've described, the familial pressure that she's feeling, the cultural and traditional pressure, and then with battling with mental illness, and she's she's a college student, probably in her first year or two of college, and really struggling with the the maturity process we all faced in college, where you had to figure <laughs> out that you were actually responsible to do things, but then she's trying to study and be successful while battling such demons and she's having a hard time and she actually takes some time off from school about this time. That's right. And I think college is such a defining period for many of us. And it's when you really test all kinds of assumptions and hypotheses about who you are and how the world works. It's also a really exciting time where you have all these types of new experiences. Now, what we know from Elisa's blogs is that she was an extremely contemplative person. She was also an extremely uh, good writer. And I think that that's why people loved her so much because she was obviously bright, smart, lots of potential, communicated her thoughts very clearly and eloquently. And I think her experiences spoke to a lot of people. And I think in the college years, you're literally trying to test yourself and seeing what you're made of. And I think some of those self stigmas that Elisa went into her college years with definitely made things a bit harder. She would say things like, well, I'm just having a hard time focusing in class. I really just can't do what's needed. And I'm sure that had a negative impact on her self-esteem even more so. 
And she probably battled this idea, this dichotomy of, I know I'm a bright person, but why can't I live up to my own potential? And one of the things that I spoke about in the documentary is that she probably wanted to challenge herself in some ways with this trip to Los Angeles. She wanted to prove to everybody that she was normal. She could do everything that everybody else was doing at this time. I've had a lot of questions on my Instagram, Mike, and people have said things like, well, what kind of, you know, is that a really normal thing for people to just be traveling everywhere? I was like, of course it is. I mean, Think about the fact that people leave for college. They leave their homes um, to faraway places. They they do um, study abroad where their child who's 19 or 20 is in a new country that maybe the family has never been in. So it's actually not that odd that she was in this developmental phase where she wanted to do that. And, you know, it is kind of interesting. I mean, obviously right now I'm much older. I'm thinking, wow, I did not know that much when I was a 20 or 21 year old. But then again, most of us were on our own at that age. Yeah, you you think that you don't know that much at that age, but you also believe you're somewhat bulletproof and you think you can do about anything. But tell me this, in your opinion, uh, Dr. Ho, was Elisa Lam a perfectionist? I really think that she had high hopes for herself. And you can see this in some of her blogs as she talked about her own aspirations, her goals, the fact that she felt like she was falling short of them. And, and I do believe that she had very high standards for herself. And sometimes that is a risk factor for certain types of conditions like depression and anxiety and the like, because you always feel like you're not meeting up to your own standards. And that can cause a lot of stress for a person, a lot of anxiety and some sadness. And I do think that she was driving herself and she really saw herself as somebody who should be achieving great things, but she felt like there was a little bit of a difference between reality and what she aspired to. I would say that that is also a very relatable theme. Again, going back to why this story gripped the world. I think a lot of people can can understand that feeling that there yeah. was maybe a vision of yourself that this is where I should be, but you look at yourself now and you're thinking, but I'm not quite there yet. And I don't think that that is isolated to just early 20s. I think that people feel that way at various stages of life into your 70s, 80s, and 90s. Let's talk about her journey. On around January 26th of 2013, she boards a train in Vancouver and she makes the trek using public transportation and eventually makes her way all the way to San Diego where she spends a day or two. And I don't know that we know which hotel she stayed in, but we do know from her blogs that she went to the zoo, that she was interacting. And it sounds like this, this girl loved to just walk up to anybody and break out in conversation and explore who they were and tell her who she was. What was your impression of her in that regard? I feel like when Elisa is feeling good, she was confident. She was an extroverted person. She really wanted to know other humans and she was very outgoing and likable. In fact, the staff member at the last bookstore in Los Angeles said that that's how she presented to them, that she was this outgoing person who was very friendly. And I think Elisa really wanted to know people. She really liked getting to know people. She enjoyed learning about people's experiences and their backstory and sharing her own. And I think that this was a big trip for her. She really not only just wanted to prove that she was able to do this, that she was independent, but she was really hoping for some inspiration. She was hoping that this would give her the motivation she needs to go back to school 
and achieve the way that she knows that she could do. And that was probably a big impetus to this trip. And so I think she was having probably at various points of the trip, the time of her life. The days roll on and by January 28th, she checks into the the Hotel Cecil. And I, I wonder what she must have thought when she checked in, but she checks in for this three-night stay. And now we see this vivacious 21-year-old who's starting to explore downtown Los Angeles. And I have to tell you, I've worked with the Los Angeles Police Department for fit the last 15 years on on problems with crime in the downtown area with analytics with their with their racer division i've ridden around with the commanders in in skid row this is one tough piece of property a, a 50 square block piece of property that averages over 100 murders per year just within that small block of property this outgoing person, what is happening to her levels of risk by checking into this hotel and riding transportation that's public-based? So she's not catching an Uber out front of the hotel and going somewhere safe. T- tell me what your thoughts are there. Well, for people who haven't been to Skid Row, it's really a place where, unfortunately, because of all of the statistics that you cited, Mike, institutional neglect can happen just because there's way too much going on. And in the docuseries, they really highlighted that, that this idea of the police being overwhelmed because of all the different calls that they get, and that it's kind of where people who are down on their luck, they just go and they kind of disappear into the backdrop because everybody is down on their luck. There's a huge population of people who have mental illness there, substance abuse problems, need medical care, and many of these people are just not getting it. And interestingly, the Cecil, when it was first instituted in 1927, it was this beautiful landmark. And it was this idea of a vacation spot for people who were wealthy, that they would come here and vacation for the weekend, come to the city, have dinner, be in the middle of the hustle and bustle. But Soon after, it became a really, really synonymous with the place of downfall. When the Great Depression hit in the 1930s, it lost its initial glory, and several guests killed themselves by jumping out of the windows. In the 1960s, two major notorious killers lived there, including Richard Ramirez in the 1980s. So eventually, the Cecil transitioned into the single-room occupancy business known as an SRO, and people started to associate it with this place where a lot of people were there because they were down on their luck and couldn't pay a real fee for a hotel. But at the same time, it was also mixed with these out-of-town and out-of-country tourists. And students and other people who might just be passing through might not have a ton of money. And by the way, if you've ever been to the lobby of the Cecil, it is beautiful. It's this it, kind it of like, beautiful. right? It's like this kind of, you know, film noir, like retro chic. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's got like gold and really nice ornate things. And it's kind of fancy, but then once you get to the rooms, and the docuseries actually highlighted this, it was not a very nice setup. And so I think Elisa probably didn't know what she was stepping into. And once she got there and she was taking the public transportation and seeing 
the types of people that generally were affiliated with Skid Row, that were, they were these misplaced individuals. And then she goes into the Cecil Hotel. And on the one hand, there's these people who are just there for a little weekend vacation. And then there's all of these other people who seem like they're really plagued with something significant. I don't know how a 20, 21-year-old could have handled that well. The thing that I have always been shocked by is that while they carved out a few floors in the middle of the Cecil for um, guests to stay that were on hotel visits, they were riding the same elevator with the the full-time resident that was living yeah. in a $75 uh, room per week or something like that. I mean, that's amazing. I, I, I just am... I marvel at her courage to even stay there. And I think that it shows, number one, her innocence and maybe her pocketbook. But if her parents had known what that corner of Skid Row was like, I'm sure they would have made sure she was staying somewhere else. Yes. And I think, again, you know, you saw in the docuseries where there was a couple, very lovely young couple from England. (laughs) And they were very well-meaning and they were very sweet. And they they said, oh, we went to the lobby of the Cecil. It looks so nice. We're thinking, wow, we're getting such a deal. It was so cheap for this beautiful place. And then they got up to the room. They're like, wait a minute. And I think that that shows you how the advertising of the hotel may not have actually matched the reality. <laughs> but when you're not living in the area, I mean, I would even say that people who we're not acquainted with Los Angeles. I mean, you could be from San Francisco, you could be from San Diego, but until you actually see Skid Row for yourself, you don't actually understand what that environment really entails. And I think everybody maybe just thought, wow, these are beautiful photos of a hotel. I can't wait to go there. And once they were actually walking around the neighborhood, they really saw what reality had to offer them. You were invited by Netflix to participate in what today is the number one show on Netflix, The Vanishing at the Hotel Cecil. And uh, um, I'd just like you to take a minute and share with people, before we continue on with Elisa's story, of the care that Netflix took to protect the truth, the family, the dignity of, uh, of Elisa's death, uh, this entire thing. Well, thank you so much for bringing that up, Mike. And that was one of the things that I felt was really significant in this entire project. I think right now we're talking about the environment of the Cecil, Elisa Lamb's character, her mental health that were highlighted in the documentary. But I think it's also important that we stop and appreciate and consider Elisa's family and what they might be going through right now. And this is where I think Netflix and the docuseries was extremely respectful because they're trying to show her as this multidimensional human being. She had amazing qualities qualities that people probably aspired to and looked up to. And she is a whole person and not just this mystery to be solved. And I think it's important that as the media attention is becoming more prevalent about this case, that maybe the family is struggling with their own feelings, kind of revisiting that grief of losing Elisa. I don't think you ever get okay with the idea of losing a loved one. And that's where I think Netflix has really been an amazing leader in this area that they really wanted to be careful about how we spoke about Elisa, how we spoke about the family, their ideas and their struggles. And I think just because Elisa's family 
did not decide to participate in the documentary, we should not make any kind of insinuations about that. People need to grieve in the way that they would like to grieve. And perhaps they just want to grieve in private instead of having a public statement. And that is completely acceptable and should be allowed. You know, I, I think this is one of the most important things that we have to remember is that grief is different for everybody. And maybe they didn't want to be involved in the story directly. But I hope that with Netflix, very thoughtful treatment of her story, that they are at the end feeling okay with it, that maybe they can see, you know what, there's so many people who jumped on this um, story because they, they actually love Elisa. They, they, they really felt like they connected with her in some way that she was personally important and relevant to them. And I think that she still is to this day. And there's so many lessons that we can learn from her story. Culturally too, how much that has to play in them wanting to remain somewhat quiet but the, the behaviors I picked out in watching and looking and researching this case, number one, they were immediately in Los Angeles when they learned that she was mm. missing. They stood with law enforcement during the news, uh, the press releases and the news conferences. Even when this thing concluded, they stood with law enforcement. Um, it, it was clear they were fully engaged and yeah, it didn't trouble me at all that they would choose not to participate in this. But the fact that Netflix, that each of you respected their position through this, treated the facts as facts, but mm-hmm. but did it in a way that was, uh, I think, pretty tender, um, I just think was really admirable. So thank you for your part in that as well. Because as you know, I first question I always have on every one of these cases is, who is the victim? And then why did they become a victim? That tells us more than, than the whodunits will ever tell us. Absolutely, Mike. And again, thank you for always having such a thoughtful approach to everything that you do. And I think that it's interesting because in the beginning of the docuseries, people probably thought, oh my goodness, she's the victim of some kind of foul play. She might even be the victim of a paranormal activity that she was <laughs> taken by ghosts. I mean, the, the amount of of conspiracy theories that were out there is fantastical. But when you back up from that, the conclusion of the docu-series is that, yes, Elisa was a victim, but she wasn't a victim the way that maybe people thought in the beginning. She was a victim of maybe partially institutional neglect. The fact that she Mm -hmm. was on Skid Row And the fact that some of her behaviors, even though odd, would just not have captured the attention of most people. She was a victim of mental health stigma, not only community stigma, but maybe self-stigma. You know, self-stigma does drive this pattern where you might stop getting treatment because you're thinking, well, I don't want to be seen as weak. I don't want to be seen as different from anyone. And maybe I could do it without treatment. Let me try again. You know, and I see this a lot with my patients. I can't say that that is exactly what Elisa was feeling, but you definitely had clues about that from her blogs that she really judged herself for having these medications. And I can say firsthand from my work with patients that I have patients who are extremely lovely, well-meaning, bright people, but every once in a while, they decide to kind of test that. Like, well, maybe I'm feeling better and I don't need medication after all. You know, I don't need to go to treatment anymore. I think anyone that knows anyone that struggles with depression or other kinds of mental illness uh, find that as soon as they are on top of things and they really are functioning well, 
there's this in piece of all of us that says, I want to do it without medicine. And they, they try to come off and it takes such an incredible amount of personal discipline, I would think, to, to continue to do that, knowing that it's okay and that you need that medicine to get by. As, as she went through now, we, as we approached the day three of her stay in the, in the Cecil hotel, she's gone through a period where she actually had to um, be moved to a private room because she starts showing some signs of really uh, weird behavior and, and her uh, roommates that she's been placed with, again, I'm sure because of the great price they were getting, start complaining about notes she's leaving, comments she's making. She even is is reported having uh, outbreak uh, behaviors at uh, a local um, talk show where she tried to, to sit in and listen in. Uh, she's making bizarre comments at the front desk of the hotel. But she has this kind of lucid moment at the bookstore that you took talked about earlier. Tell me about this up and down roller coaster that this kid is starting to go through and, and what happened at the grocery store, I mean, at the bookstore, and then take us to the elevator. Absolutely. When people are in the middle of dealing with a bipolar illness, there can be a lot of ups and downs. There's these manic episodes where the person feels up, they might be more impulsive, they might be more goal-oriented. But of course, the extremes of that is that they could be grandiose, they could have delusions, they could have hallucinations, they could have disorganized thoughts. But they also have this other side where they're feeling so depressed, so down, they can't even get up in the morning. And Elisa has talked about both spectrums of that on her blogs. And it's an interesting phenomenon that the bipolar patients that I've worked with and treated have sometimes said, you know what, and I know that this sounds odd, but I've looked forward to my hypomanic or manic episodes. Because at least during wow. those days, I wasn't feeling like I was crap and my life isn't anything and that I was having difficulty getting out of bed. You know, just for a few days or a couple of weeks, I could feel like I was on the top of the world, that I could do anything and I could believe in myself again. And so it's this really weird wrestling when you talk to people who suffer from bipolar disorder. My heart is just aching to, th to think of that, you know, and to have, have lived a life where I feel like I've had a pretty even kill um, yeah. to feel so bleak and then so wonderful would be yeah. so challenging. I agree. And I think that that's why when you're in the middle of that bleakness and those bleakness states definitely last longer in general than the manic states, because you really can't be manic for more than a couple of weeks at the most, because you will get into such trouble medically or emotionally that somebody's going to stop you, whether you're going to get arrested or you're going to end up being in a psychiatric hospitalization. I mean, something is going to happen that is significant when you are really manic for most people so that sometimes people can spend a year in depression before they have this five-day manic episode. And that's what I meant by some of these patients. They, they almost start to have this really weird ambivalence about their manic episodes. Like, I know that's bad, and I know I'm not supposed to like it, and I know that when that happens, I'm supposed to call my doctor, but I also kind of like it because it's when I actually feel good about myself. And it is heartbreaking, Mike, and I'm glad that you commented on that. So I think in the days leading up to Elisa's death, she was probably in a manic episode. And we know that this might be a possibility because there's evidence that she didn't take her medications properly. She wasn't taking her antipsychotic, which keeps her more at an even kill in terms of her thoughts and not 
veering off into delusions and hallucinations. She wasn't taking her mood stabilizer, which is supposed to keep her, again, as you mentioned, at more of an even keel, not too high, not too low. She was taking at least one of her antidepressants. And there is research that shows that when somebody has bipolar disorder and they're taking their antidepressants, but they're not taking their antipsychotics and they're taking their mood stabilizers, that it actually amplifies the risk of having a manic episode. Wow. Adding to that, she was in a very stressful situation. We talked about being all by herself. What a culture shock on Skid Row, no less. Those things are going to amplify that risk of her having a manic episode. In the days leading up to her death, she attended a filming of a national TV show, and she wrote apparently a rambling letter that she wanted the staff of the show to give to the host. They were concerned about that as a security risk, so they bust her out. They said, you know, you got to leave. As you already mentioned, she was kind of staying in a sort of a hostile environment within the hotel. She had a couple of roommates, and she had these delusions, essentially, about the fact that maybe they were after her, that maybe they were there to harm her. So she started leaving notes saying, get out, go away. Um, and because of those bizarre behaviors, the hotel management ended up moving her into her own room. And she went to the last bookstore. She was very chatty, outgoing. The staff said she was really lovely. And she wanted to buy some books for her family. She was asking questions about if this is too heavy. Can she really carry it on the plane? What do they think? And that was really the last time that anybody saw her outside of the Cecil. And the last known public sighting of her was the hotel footage, which is what took the world by storm because she acted so bizarrely in that particular footage. Now, uh, Elisa gets into the elevator and we have this imagery and video that's captured, not shared with the public for like 12 days, if I remember right. And uh, in there, she's seen doing a number of, of bizarre things. First, she is pushing every button for every floor in the elevator, which uh, catches a lot of people's attention. Um, then she also uh, presses the door open, door closed buttons, but the elevator basically becomes inoperative for two minutes uh, by design when that button is pushed like that. But then she starts uh, peeking out of the door, looking left and right, walking out of the elevator in, and acting really um, bizarre. To walk us through what's going on uh, from your perspective as a psychologist. You know, I think a lot of people saw this and they thought, oh my gosh, maybe she's conjuring a spirit. There was a part of the elevator footage where she stepped outside of the elevator and she was moving her hands in these odd ways. And people thought, well, it doesn't make any sense. Maybe she's conjuring a spirit or, or a paranormal uh, presence of some sort. People thought that maybe she was running away from somebody because she looked like at one point that she was sort of pressed up against one corner of the elevator and she was fearful. She was kind of peeking out, making sure nobody was following her or something like that. Interestingly, as a psychologist, and I'm sure your approach as an investigator, Mike, was also different in terms of your view. Um, when I saw this footage, I, I'm a pretty pragmatic person. I'm a scientific person. And of course, I have the expertise that I have. And the first thing I thought was, I think this person is in the middle of a psychotic episode. Yeah. And that's because I've seen it so many times before in my work. You know, people who are in the middle of a psychotic episode, they have these persecution delusions where they think somebody's after them. And 
even if you can't see them with your eyes, with our eyes, she sees them. She believes that they're there. She believes that they're a menacing presence. Even the hand movements that seemed odd to people, that is actually a feature of a psychotic episode where people have what we call psychomotor agitation. These are kind of non-functional movements that people are doing. They might be wringing their hands. They might be moving their hands and feet really fast because of the internal anxiety and thought disorganization that they're experiencing, that it is actually essentially having a uh, physical manifestation. And that is very common as well in these psychotic episodes, adding to the fact that later on the investigators found out that Elisa had a history of going off of her medications that when she did, she would have a manic episode and she would start thinking that people were after her. The family said that she would hide under the bed. She would get really scared. And on at least one occasion, they had to hospitalize her because that episode got so severe. Once you put all of that together, it makes sense that what we saw was consistent with something like a psychotic episode. I had flashbacks to during my uh, college years, I worked in the psychiatric unit and um, I mean, it was a great education for me f- for law enforcement, <laughs> but I remember Dr. Clark Summers sitting me down after a schizophrenic patient went ballistic and just destroyed the unit. We eventually had to put him in posy belts and, and all the things we used to do. And I don't know that they do those today, but um, he said, he said, now imagine your biggest, most frightening fear, the, the most terrifying monster you could imagine being so real you can taste it feel it everything else that's what these people are experiencing when they are going through some of these kinds of events and i don't think i ever forgot that yeah and i think that that's what sometimes people don't realize is that when somebody is experiencing that it's very visceral it's very real they have no insight that it's not actually in the physical world. Uh, their their fear is so real and their drive to survive is so significant that they will do anything to try to escape whatever nefarious presence that they believe is after them. And one of my theories is that it makes sense that in this state, she got on the roof and she was looking around, looking for a place to hide the roof is pretty bare. There's not really that much there if you've seen the roof of the Cecil, except for those four water tanks. And maybe in that moment in time, she thought this is the best place to hide. Adding to the fact that when people are in the middle of a manic episode with psychotic features, they are more impulsive. They make decisions kind of on the fly. It's not like she's thought about this for hours on end, like I'm going to plan this thing where I escape whatever's after me and I'm going to do this. You know, she did it on in the moment. I believe as a way to save herself. I know that there was a theory out there that maybe she tried to commit suicide, but if you read her blogs and if you look at her presentation, people who've interacted with her, I believe she wanted to live. I believe she was trying to save her own life by getting into the tank. And I know that you and I had talked about offline that, you know, there's probably a reason why she ended up being naked inside the tank, you know, that over time, because of the fact that she was trying to save herself, she actually shed her clothes. So let's talk about that, because that's, that's the the real end to the story is, she ends up inside this water tank. And and this um, really petite woman is able to lift that metal hatch, she's able to scale up. So you, you think about this terrorized feeling of, of how do I escape and find a place to get away? 
Um, and, and then she gets inside of that tank, but all of a sudden the reality of what she did when she drops into that tank strikes her because the tank was about two thirds full. If I remember the police report, which would have been too tall of or too deep of water for her to stand. So she now is trapped. She can't get buoyant enough to get back up to the top of the tank, which is about 10 feet, if I remember right, uh, in height. So now you have this, this uh, five foot two or three, I can't remember her exact height, woman who's just absolutely unable to reach the top. And I would, uh, you know, suspect that at that moment, she then starts panicking even more. And then, of course, talk about this um, desire to live and and would it have actually taken precedence over the fear of trying to get away from someone? I mean, how does the mind shift to I now need to survive versus I was getting in here to hide? Really, I think she was in this state of fight or flight, and she was thinking about all different kinds of ways that she could get out of that situation. And I know that you mentioned this to me, and I think that that's absolutely true, that you know, as you're trying to tread water for as long as you can to try to find some way to get out of there, because, you know, there was a ladder that led into the tank, but there's no ladder on the inside. There's no way that she could get out when she was in there. And by the time that they had found her, if you read the deposition of the lead investigator, Detective Tanel, um, he has said that by the time that they had looked at the tank and looked at where her body was placed in the water level, it was maybe six feet below the top. I mean, that's too hard for anybody to get up there. You can't, there's nothing, there's nothing helping you gripping you on the side where you can kind of brace yourself to get to the top. And maybe she had shut her clothes because she was trying to lighten the load a bit, you know, so that she could keep afloat as long as she could. I know that there was a lot of conspiracy theories about there's no way that this maybe five, two or five, three woman, you know, who was maybe 115 pounds. How could she lift this lid? It looks humongous. Well, there was a little hatch in the middle of the tank and it's only 18 by 18. And when you read the deposition of the detective, he says that it's a lid that's not on hinges. You can just kind of take it off and move it to the side. And it was only about 20 pounds. Now, probably all of us have lifted it at some point, you know, picking up a household item, grabbing a couple bags of groceries. So I think that that's definitely well within her uh, capability to be able to lift that. And there was also like an odd thing that happened in terms of the police reporting. I think there was just an honest mistake. One of the detectives, when they were doing the initial media report, said the lid was closed when we found her. But later mm-hmm. on, you found out that the staff member who found her, his name was Santiago, and he actually wrote a declaration for this under the threat of perjury. And he said, oh, when I found her body, the the hatch was open. So that kind of solves that idea that maybe somebody had thrown her in there and closed the hatch on her. You know, this actually yeah. then lends itself to the possibility that she got in herself. And of course, then the hatch was open because she wasn't closing it once she got in. She actually spends 19 days in there before she's finally discovered. And of course, there, there are lots of, uh, lots of discussion out there about that. But bottom line is, forensically, the reports back from the medical examiner, um, the physical evidence, the, the behavioral evidence, all pointed in the end to an accidental drowning and uh, a woman who was suffering from mental illness that probably was the precipitated 
event because she had stopped taking medication. Is that correct? Yes. And the official autopsy report came to the conclusion that this was an accidental drowning with a significant contributory factor of bipolar disorder. And the contributory factor of bipolar disorder is exactly what we've been talking about, that she had probably not been taking her medications properly. And in fact, she was taking her medications in a way where she was omitting certain important medications. And not only did they not find traces of certain medications in the analysis, they also went through her belongings and they realized that for the fill date of the prescriptions that she's had, she had too many pills and it didn't make sense. So essentially she filled her prescription at that point in time, she should have had only a certain number of pills left. And she actually had a lot more than that. So it means that she wasn't taking her medication, nor was she trying to give it to anybody else. I mean, she just wasn't taking them. You know, people had some theories that maybe she was on some kind of hallucinogen, that maybe she was on Skid Row and somebody gave her some MDMA. That was all ruled out too, because in the autopsy report, she wasn't even on alcohol, let alone illicit substances. There was actually no illicit substances found at all in the analysis. So they also looked at her body. They looked at anything that could be uh, essentially signs of foul play, like maybe bruises or cuts, and there wasn't any. And I think the investigators and the forensic expert concluded that it was pretty hard for a person to be carrying another person up those tenuous, uh, there was a ladder leading up to the tank, right? It was just too hard that if you were to do that, that there wouldn't be a bump or bruise somewhere on her body. Exactly. And if she, if she were unconscious and thrown into there, she would have had scrapes or cuts. Uh, it it just, it just did not make sense and actually fit very nicely Um, Now, the thing that's so interesting to me that I'd like to kind of close this discussion with is that there is such an interesting thing going on in the true crime community and in the community as a whole that regardless of evidence that comes forward, we still see portions of the population that continue to look at this as uh, uh, paranormal or conspiratory, help me understand this um, this camp that's created and why evidence doesn't matter. You know, it's an interesting question, and I think right now the reason why the story still resonates eight years after Elisa Lamb's tragic death. And the fact that even though the docuseries was so thorough in how they broke everything down and essentially at the end disproved all of the conspiracy theories, and yet people are still saying, I don't believe it. They're still hiding something. I want to call LAPD. The hotel manager is uh, hiding something too. She might have had something to do with her killing. You know, I think it happens because human beings were always trying to explain things that don't make sense to us. And in essence, it gives us a sense of control over our own lives. Like it makes us feel like bad things don't just happen to good people for no reason, that there's a way that we can at least try to explain why that happened. And also we find that in moments of chaos and stress, people reach for these cognitive shortcuts even more. Instead of just saying, you know what, these are just crazy, unfortunate 
coincidences, like the fact that there was this tuberculosis test that was called Lamb Lisa. <laughs> that was insane because, you know, we didn't even get into that, that the idea that there was a tuberculosis yeah. outbreak on Skid Row when she was staying there and the test that they were using to find out if somebody had been infected was called the Lamb Lisa and it was spelled exactly the same way as her name, just inverted. The fact that if you put in the postal code that is uh, associated with the registration of the last bookstore on their website, that it points to the burial site of Elisa's body in Vancouver. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. But you cannot make this you up. You really can't. You know, so you kind of understand why the conspiracy theorists went yeah. wild. But at the same time, when things don't make sense, our minds are trying to make sense of them. They're taking these cognitive shortcuts. They're thinking, how do we make point A and point B link up? Sometimes point A and point B are just there together at the same time, and they have no meaning. But our minds can't contend with that. There's a bit of a narcissism that I think we all have as human beings that we want to see the significance and how it applies to our own lives. And I don't mean narcissism in a bad way. I just mean that, you know, all human beings are a little self-centered. You know, we're, we're trying to understand our own survival, what something means to us. And we're trying to translate those lessons for ourselves and the people that we care about. So I think some of these conspiracy theorists headed that way because it, essentially it's type of a coping mechanism. It's like, I can't explain this. This is stressing me out. But if I could make meaning out of these random events, not only would it make me feel good about myself, but I would understand that the universe has a rhythm and an order. And that would make me yeah. feel more calm. And I think that that was a big part of why conspiracy theorists were were so active on this particular case. Well, I'll tell you, it, it was so uh, nice to be able to have qualified, um, educated uh, researchers, uh, in your case, uh, neuropsychologists, uh, law enforcement that was fact-driven, uh, medicological reports and autopsy reports that uh, supported and brought together um, all of what to me seemed like a logical conclusion of an accidental death. And I hope to Elisa Lamb's family that it brings solace that this kid wasn't spun out on alcohol or or street drugs that it was what they had seen repeated several times in her life um a fact of of her mental illness that led to many of the things that then snowballed um the last thing that i guess i would like to say is i found it disturbing and i'd love to have you come back if we could talk about this um mindset almost um a, a, almost like a pack of dog mindset that led to um the accusing of people of crimes involved in this case that had nothing to do with it um it, it could go in so many different tentacles between things that uh, maybe in the YouTube community people do in order to get clicks and get people to come and listen to them, what other people might do to get attention, but what we as a community do when we don't have the facts, but we decide that someone's responsible for something. And I I had a, a nice chat with John Lorden, and I told him how much I appreciated his professionalism and being able to say as a YouTuber my initial thoughts changed as the evidence unfolded. And we talked about um, the categorization of web sleuths being responsible for so many horrendous things. And I spoke to the, to the um, 
owner of WebSluice who was devastated that it was categorized in a way that sounded like it was the organization WebSluice. And so sometime maybe we could come back and just talk about how uh, we as human beings adopt this pack mentality and go after the weakest for some reason. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think one of the big themes in the docuseries, and I was just chatting with the director of the docuseries, Joe Berlinger, last week about the fact that cyberbullying is very much alive and that it is not only prevalent among teenagers. It is happening among adults. And that's exactly what you were just speaking about, that essentially in the docuseries, this Mexican death metal musician, his name was Morbid, that somehow he was just pegged with being the murderer of Elisa Lam only because he sang about pretty gnarly stuff in his music because, you know, he's a death metal musician. And also he had stayed at the Cecil a year before she got there and people just made this odd connection. They started bullying him like crazy. And guess what? It caused him to actually try to take his own life and he was hospitalized. And what's been really weird is that after the documentary aired... People saw this story, they became up in arms about how there were original cyberbullies of Morbid, and they started to cyberbully the internet sleuths, who actually had nothing to do with Morbid cyberbullying. So the ones that were actually featured in the show, those internet sleuths had nothing to do with the Morbid situation. Those were just other people who were uh, bullying Morbid. But people started to actually levy all kinds of threats against the internet sleuths that were featured in the story. And one of the things that I talked about with Joe Berlinger was, you know, he said, you know what, I really lament that. And that's distressing to me because the whole idea is that this is a cautionary tale about jumping to conclusions. And then people jumped to this other conclusion and now decided to cyber bully the internet sleuths without having any evidence that they were even the ones involved with morbid cyberbullying. So, Dr. Judy Ho, forensic neuropsychologist, I cannot thank you enough for taking time to be with me today as we talk about The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, this amazing Netflix number one docuseries that uh, has really helped people understand the complexities surrounding Lisa, um, Elisa Lamb's death. Folks, I hope you'll take time to go to drjudyho.com, read more about Judy's amazing career and all of the things that she's involved in. There you can also get more information on her great new book, Stop Self-Sabotage. And if you have not thought about getting this book, order it today because it is really a great read. It will help you in facing many of the challenges you're facing today. And Dr. Ho, I hope you'll come back again. There are so many cases we need to explore together. Well, I can't wait, Mike. It's always amazing to work with you. You're a phenomenal human being, and I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you. And folks, if you have not... Uh, gone to Dr. Ho's podcast, make sure that you get that supercharged life. And there's a three-part series on uh, Dr. Ho re-looking at some of the evidence surrounding the Cecil Hotel and the Elisa Lamb death. Uh, For me, it was captivating and changed so many misconceptions that I had. So Doc, thank you so much. We'll get you back. and, And again, have a great day. You too. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Profiling Evil podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And please, don't forget to go to our YouTube channel where you can watch some of the hundreds of videos we've created. Now, if you're looking for a great crime story, 
check out my new book, Deceived, an investigative memoir of the Zion Society cult. You can find it at profilingevil.com. While you're there, you can also sign up for our elite newsletter, The Bolo. I'm Mike King, and thanks for listening. Hey folks, it's Mike from Profiling Evil. I've been studying criminal behavior for more than 40 years, and one of my favorite research tools is Truthfinder. It's online, and you're not going to believe the information stored there. So if you want to know more about that new neighbor, your babysitter, or your online date, give Truthfinder a try. I'm including a special link below with special discount pricing, but you got to click the link and enter Evil 10 at checkout. Now, we're an affiliate, which means we get a small commission, but you can cancel at any time.